Jeremiah, why don't you turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 47. Jeremiah 47. I love this, uh, I love this uh, section of the book we're in. It's, it's kind of heavy, though. I got to warn you uh, ahead of time. Uh, crazy stuff, that's for sure. Um, so, um, Jeremiah chapter 47. So, uh, what I want to do is cover this short little chapter. Um, we've been doing that, I've noticed, more in Jeremiah maybe than some of the other uh, books of the Bible. A lot of times I'll take a single verse or what have you, but I'd like to take this little seven verse you know, chapter and uh, break it down. Now, let's talk about what's going on here in uh, Jeremiah chapter 47. Um, uh, we, we're starting to hand out the judgments of God to the various surrounding nations. And these are mostly nations that treated Israel badly. And so, you know, these nations, uh, God even used some of these nations, but you have to almost picture it like this, you know, um, you know, you parents, you're in, let's say you're in, uh, you know, uh, Walmart and, um, and you know, your, your child's being, you know, naughty and touching everything on the, on the, uh, shelves and, and you know, you, you come up then and give them a bit of a scolding for that. Um, well, you can do that because you're the parent, but what would happen if you saw one of these other mothers come up and start scolding your child? <laughs> I can feel the temperature boiling in some of you already. Uh, that's my child and he or she is a little angel and you leave them alone, you know? Um, it, it's, it's a little weird, you know, when somebody else is trying to discipline your children, you know? Um, even though they needed discipline, uh, that's your job as the parent. Well, did you know that God kind of has the same demeanor? These other nations wanted to punish Israel, the Babylonians, the Edomites, the Moabites, the, ba uh, the uh, Philistines, the Egyptians. And so God is going to name, each chapter we're going to name uh, 10 of these nations that God says, I'm going to judge these nations. And they're going down. Uh, but the one I wanted to focus on, there's, it's, the way this is put really is intriguing to me. And um, it has more to do with, um, you know, the familiarity. I think of all the enemies of Israel, some of you are very familiar with the Philistines. The Philistines are a bunch of people that go all the way back, you know, even before David's time and, you know, the famous Philistine battle of David and Goliath there in the Valley of Elah. Um, and, you know, the, the Philistines are something we know about. Um, and there's also all kinds of misconceptions about the Philistines. And so we want to kind of read this chapter and then we'll talk about the Philistines. But there's something I think for us to glean in our current modern day culture you know, from this little chapter as well. So let's read. It's Jeremiah chapter 47, verse one. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before that Pharaoh smote Gaza. Thus saith the Lord, behold, waters rise up out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood and shall overflow the land and all that is therein, the city and them that dwell therein. Then the men shall cry and all the inhabitants of the land shall howl. And the noise of the stomping of the hooves of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of his wheels. The fathers shall not look back to their children for feebleness of hands because of the day that, the, uh, that cometh to spoil all the Philistines and to cut off Tyrus and Zidon, every helper that remaineth for the Lord will spoil the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kapphor, or Crete. Baldness is come upon Gaza, 
Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long wilt thou cut thyself? O thou sword of the Lord, how long will it be ere be quiet? Put up thyself into thy scabbard, rest and be still. How can it be quiet, seeing that the Lord hath given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore? There hath he appointed it. All right, so here we have it, uh, the Philistines. And one of the cities here is Ashkelon. Now there's five major Philistine cities. Some of them you already know. You know, the city of Gath is probably the most famous because that's where Goliath was from. When you go to Israel today, you look for G-A-T and they call it Gat. Uh, they don't call it uh, Gath. That's the way we call it in uh, English, but it's it's Gat. And um, I've been to Gat. Uh, in fact, uh, I took some buddies and we went down for filming purposes to um, to these five major Philistine cities. And we went to Gath and Ashkelon and Ekron and uh, you know all these places. The the five major Philistine cities we went to. In fact, I even brought some video uh, with me. So uh, let's let's roll this. This is kind of cool. Um, this is a little vil- uh, uh, ruin, I should say, down near the Gaza Strip, and it's a place called. Um, Ak- uh, it's, this is one that's mentioned right here, Ashkelon, and it's a beautiful place by the the Mediterranean Sea. And here, uh, me and some of my buddies went kind of hiking through these ancient ruins. And these are the Philistine cities that were around during the time of David and Samuel and Solomon and all these guys. These are the ruins of Ashkelon itself. Um, Actually, you know, when you go there, it reminds you of San Diego as far as the climate, the temperature, the palm trees. Uh, It's very beautiful there by the Mediterranean Sea. Um, but the thing that's amazing about this is of all the places I would build a beautiful city here today, it's such a beautiful place, but it just sits there in total ruin. Now, if you go south of here, just a a mile, you come to barbed wire. And the reason why is because the barbed wire, uh, leads to the Gaza strip. That's where the Philistines like to hang out is down by the Gaza strip. Um, and there it is. That's Ashkelon. Those are some of the shots that we got. Um, but all that to say, um, you know, last week we talked about Egypt. This week I want to talk about, you know, Philistines. But before we get into all that, um, you know, these, these, these cities uh, are in total ruin. Gath is in ruin, Ashkelon, Ekron. You know, these places are all still in rubble. And really this is, you know, Ezekiel, pardon me, uh, Jeremiah chapter uh, 47 come come to pass, the destruction of the Philistines. Now let's talk about that historically just for a second. Um, Who are the Philistines? Where did they come from and where are they now? Uh, That's something that I think needs to be told because there's a lie out there that's used for political purposes. The Philistines actually came from, like the Bible says right here, it's called Kafor, another name for Crete or the islands of Crete and the Aegean Sea. They were sort of a Phoenician bunch of people that probably came down by ships uh, from Crete and came down to the southern part of Israel or what is known today as the Gaza Strip. Strip. They landed there on that beach and they settled and they put five cities right out, right near the area of the Gaza Strip today. You, you and I wouldn't necessarily go into Gaza today because there's a lot of uh, violence, bombs, uh, hatred for, you know, it's the Hamas. That's where the Hamas are. Um, and the Palestinians are there, the angry ones. 
Um, there are some Palestinians, of course, in Israel, in the West Bank, that are living quite nicely and doing well, as long as they're peaceable and doing the right things. But um, but these ones in Gaza are down there, and there's a border there that you have to cross, and there's constant conflict. There's missiles that fly over that border. Um, even when we were there, there were that very day, there were missiles flying from Gaza over the border near Ashkelon there. Um, when you hear about Israel's bombs going off today, they're usually in that city I just showed you um, because uh, it's right on the border with Gaza. So these Philistines, they were there, um, you know, 1000 BC uh, before Jesus even came. The Philistines were there, some people say up to 1500 years BC. They were, uh, they were there from Crete and somewhere 1500 BC came down, settled that region and became known as the Philistines. Um, now, uh, what happened? Well, you guys know the Bible tells us the Philistines were huge enemies of Israel, along with a lot of other groups. But the Philistines weren't Canaanites. They were, like I said, Phoenicians that came down from Crete. But like the Canaanites um, and all these other nations that we're going to talk about uh, on Wednesday night when we get to all these judgments of the nations, um, the Philistines might have, you could arguably say they were the worst enemies of Israel. They were, uh, along with maybe the Amalekites and some others, but the Philistines, they were a bad bunch. And they were uh, ahead of their time militarily. When you go to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, one of the fun things to do, uh, uh, by the way, it's an amazing museum, uh, incredible stuff. Um, you can go to the Philistine section and they have from these ruins that I just showed you, they have uh, swords and helmets and breastplates of Philistine armor and weaponry that's there. You can go look at it and um, it's amazing. It's it's from the time of David and Goliath um, and you can see these weapons and, and they were way ahead of the game on weaponry and, and using metal and forging metal into weapons. They were way ahead of the, the Jews or anybody in that region of the world. Um, they probably brought some of that technology down from the north and brought it down to the Mediterranean. But because of that, they were a fierce army and they were constantly trouncing the Jews. And you know, David uh, was their first real victory against uh, the, the Philistines that was legitimate when he killed Goliath. But even after that, the Philistines just kept troubling Israel. Um, now, if you wanna know kind of what happened later on, Solomon, uh, it would be David would largely subdue the Philistines. It was during the reign of David. When Solomon came along, he all but thumped them out. Solomon just pretty much rubbed out the Philistines. There was just a small, tiny group of Philistines left after Solomon, and they became very weak. And all the other nations caught up militarily, technology-wise, and it sort of um, made the Philistines sort of a non-issue. And they largely were a non-issue to other nations um, all the way to Jeremiah's day. Um, but this tells us exactly how the Philistines would end. Um, the flood that we were reading about here in, in uh, verse two, when it says the Lord, uh, thus saith the Lord, behold, waters rise up out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood. That's the Babylonians. They're gonna come and it says they shall overflow the land and um, everybody's gonna cry and howl. Now this is where it gets horrifying. If you can put yourself in the Philistine sandals for a second, um, this, this language is horrifying. It says that the noise of the stamping of the hoofs, verse three, of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of his wheels, the fathers shall not look back to their children for feebleness of hands. They're gonna be running their, for their lives so much that they're gonna basically say, Junior, you're on your own. I gotta get out of here. 
and they won't have enough strength to save their own children. They're just gonna try to save themselves as their children are run over by these chariots and taken out by the Babylonians. Like, like it's a horrifying imagery that is used here uh, in the language of this prophecy. But uh, basically they're gonna be cut off and Tyre and Zidon, they're up in the north in par parts of what we would call today Lebanon. They, they wouldn't come to the rescue, which, um, you know, the Philistines sometimes were in league with the Sidonians and the, um, the people from Tyre, but uh, they were not gonna be any help, you know, Jeremiah says. And, and then here in our text, um, you know, it's like the Philistines sort of say, say something back in verse six. They say, oh, thou sword of the Lord, how long will uh, it be ere thou quiet until you put yourself your sword away, Lord? You know, they're saying, how long? And then they say, put up thyself into thy scabbard, rest and be still. That's the Philistines talking in verse six, saying, Lord, put away your sword. You've plunged it into Philistia and we're toast, please. But then the Lord's basically saying in verse seven, how can it be quiet? seeing the Lord hath given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore, there hath he appointed it. So those ruins that I showed you were Ashkelon, just like this. And they sit there from ancient times, just like the Lord said, the Philistines, they were rubbed out in history by the Babylonians. You never hear from a Philistine ever again, ever. They're dead, extinct, wiped off the map, never to be thought of again. Why then do we have Philistines today? Uh, you know, the, the modern word Palestinian is the same word. Um, and there's a narrative out there, and this is kind of off my topic here, but I do need to say this. The Palestinians of, uh, of that region, they would like for the world to think, and Yasser Arafat largely was responsible for this false narrative, basically saying, um, uh, we're the ancient Philistines, and we were here before the Jews were, and the Jews came and wiped us out, and um, and they've made this narrative that they're the ancient Philistines. It's just so untrue. The Philistines were wiped out by Babylon, and they were gone. Uh, the land sat in desolation, and countries and nations came and went for millennia after that. Um, what, when did the Palestinians today become the Palestinians? Probably some of you were alive when that happened. It was in the 1930s. You can look it up online. Look up the Pal uh, Palestinian Post. It's a newspaper that's called the Palestinian Post, edited by Jews. Uh, look at the Palestinian Orchestra from 1924. All Jews. Who were Palestinians back in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s? They were anyone living in what was called Palestine. We'll talk about the name in a second. But they were mostly Jews and they call themselves Palestinians. The, can you believe it? If you look back, you can find it. It's not that hard to find. The Jews called themselves Palestinians and also the Bedouins and some of the Arabs that were around, they all said we're Palestinians because we live in Palestine. It was Yasser Arafat that made it change to be the Palestinians or the Arab people who've been ousted by the Jews. Um, and that was a false uh, narrative. Um, the Palestinians of today are really, if you want to be technical, most of them are Jordanians. They're Jordanians, and they came from the land, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Um, but the narrative that they're Palestinians makes such a beautiful thing. When, when did they call Israel Palestine? Well, that's an interesting story. When the Jews were being trounced by the Romans and, and wiped out, um, one of the worst emperors that came along and really was the final blow. You know, it was AD 70 when the Jews were driven out of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, by the Roman uh, general Titus. 
But um, years later, one of the emperors that came was named Hadrian, and Hadrian sure made his way around. You can find Hadrian gates in Ephesus and in uh, Jarish and archeological digs. He was a huge emperor, hated the Jews, and he said, if you see two Jews talking together in Jerusalem or in Israel, you can kill them. You have a license to kill them if you see two talking together. Um, he also uh, um, uh, salted the farmlands of the Jews uh, with salt so that they couldn't grow crops anymore and they had to flee. Um, but he also did two things to erase the Jews from history as he renamed Israel from Israel to, uh, to Palestina. And he said, what can we name it to make the Jews mad or to make them be forgotten as a people? Um, well, let's call it their ancient enemies that are, that are extinct. We'll call them the Pil Philistines, basically. The land of the Philistines. Even though they were extinct by the time Hadrian named Israel Palestina, the Philistines were gone. So he calls that that. He calls Jerusalem Aelia Capitolina. That one didn't stick for long and it still remained Jerusalem. But the name Palestine stuck up until 1948 when the League of Nations and uh, the world said, Israel, you deserve a nation after the Holocaust uh, to go back to your land that was ancient Israel. So they gave Palestine and the Jews bought Palestine and God gave them Palestine and that's why they're there today. Um, it's an amazing thing. No people group in the world has a more clear and right to be in the land that they're at than any other group in the world. Uh, you know, in the United States, we could talk about the American Indians and how we took the land from them. And if you want to be sanctimonious, you better deal with that first. If you're going to tell Israel to get off the land, uh, we're way guiltier than the Jews. The Jews had God-given right, purchased right, and the world gave Israel to them. You just couldn't do it more clean and clear. And yet, isn't it amazing? Sometimes the most obvious, clean and clear truth is the most, um, um, you know, covered truth as well. So don't be duped into following, you know, this news that Israel's occupying Palestinian lands and all this stuff. That's just a, a bunch of rhetoric. Um, uh, I can um, refer you to a great book that talks about the history of that land and that region and the Jews called From Time Immemorial. I've recommended that book several times. I don't recommend a lot of books, but this one's well-documented and it explains uh, in great detail everything I just explained. Um, so, so all that to say, Jeremiah prophesies this future for the, Pal uh, the Palestinians, the Philistines, that they would be wiped out, and this came to pass. But there's a funny little thing. Now, as we move from the geopolitics of this whole thing and the, and the prophecy that actually did come to pass, it starts to make me, um, it makes me think about, um, you know, what the Philistines represent. Uh, last week, we did a whole teaching on Egypt um, and how they were a type of the world and carnality and sin, the world and its system. In the Bible, what do you think the Philistines tend to represent? Well, Bible scholars seem to be uh, unanimous together. We believe the Philistines were unsaved people around those people who were saved. It's almost like us, you know, the Jews had to live in the midst of the Philistines. And how did the unbelieving group believe or act with the believing group. And, and when you see David and Goliath and you see the Philistines and the way they interacted in the battles, you see a type or a picture that we can sort of learn from. And so all that to say, um, we're gonna see this, the Philistines are a symbol of the unsaved. 
uh, in the midst of the saved, the Jews, the chosen people. And uh, we're going to see how that shakes out. But the, the, the verse that I'd like to sort of draw your attention to is Jeremiah 47, 5. Um, and that, that says there, um, baldness <laughs> is come upon Gaza. Ashkelon is uh, cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long wilt thou cut thyself? Um, now, the question is, why were they bald? Uh, where's the Rogaine? Uh, you know, what, what's the deal there? Well, as it turns out, baldness could have been any number of ways. And there's, there's dispute on why this idea of baldness uh, is talked about. It could be talking about the land itself, not somebody's hair. Uh, you know, that they would, they would scrape the, the land bald. But, um, but some, some say, no, it's the Philistines were going to be so... Uh, in mourning about the Babylonian invasion that they'd pull their hair out or shave their head as a sign of um, mourning. Uh, that was also something that could have happened there. Um, others say no, it's because they were diseased and they got all into trouble just because of the pestilence and disease of that day and they ended up being bald because of that. So there's a huge debate about baldness, but the point is that it's not a good thing for the Philistines. Um, uh, but before I leave the bald thing, if you're a bald man, don't be bummed out. Almost all the bald guys in the Bible are a-okay. The guys with the big hairdos, most of them are uh, sketchy at best. <laughs> you know, Samson, not the greatest model of what a man should be. Samuel, remember, he was a bald man. Remember, um, they, the, the, the young, young men and women that walked up said, go up that bald man, and they made fun of Samuel, and Samuel said, you're going to be cursed. And some she-bears came and ate all those people up. Uh, that's what happened to somebody who made fun of a bald person. So you've got some ammo in the Bible if you're a bald person. Uh, but but uh, Absalom, Samson, the big hair people, you know, not always great. Uh, so just, just I gave you some freebie there uh, for that. But, but um not to really focus on that part, but the last phrase of this verse, I find it interesting. In, in verse five, the Lord asks a rhetorical question that begs an answer for me, uh, and it should for us as well. And it's this, this part of this verse that says, how long wilt thou cut thyself? How long wilt thou? And that's really what I wanna make of my teaching on this day, on this freezing weekend, here in the Portland area. I, I, I wanna talk about this question the Lord says to the Philistines, how long are you gonna cut yourself? Um, this is an interesting question because um, the idea is they're, they're doing it to themselves because of their own behavior, their godlessness and worldliness. It's like they're cutting themselves. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my faves, did a sermon on this and uh, he used this phrase and he did a whole sermon on how long will I cut themselves? And that kind of inspired me to make this sort of the topic of the day. But he started his sermon out like this and you got a picture, you know, big guy with a beard, pretty much me. Um, uh, <laughs> some people say I look like Spurgeon, which count me in, he was a good dude. Um, but he had a British accent and he had this huge, you know, metropolitan tabernacle in, in London and his voice would boom, you know, uh, and picture him starting the sermon. He said, the expression is used first, almost in despair. You know, how long will you cut yourself? The question is asked with little hope, as if the self-torturer would never have done that to stop, but would go on to mutilate himself without end. I intend to use this at this time as a question asked instructively 
and hopefully in the hope that some who have practically been cutting themselves will cease from this self-torture and find rest and peace where it is to be had and to be had at once and forever, may the good spirit grant our desire. And then he went on and preached this powerful sermon about, you know, how long will you torture yourself? How long will you cut yourself? You see, this is the question that is asked here sort of rhetorically by the Lord to the Philistines. How long are you guys gonna do yourselves in and cut yourself? Um, and then as we look at this, um, you know, this passage, it's kind of interesting because we see sort of the practical cutting that they were actually doing to themselves. Um, because of their godlessness and because of their hatred for the Jews, they were doing things that caused them great, great trouble and peril. And every time the Jews would wipe them out or God would judge them, they'd go back to their evil practices and just keep hurting themselves. Do you know people like this? Are you one of those people that you know, you keep doing stuff that just messes your life up and hurts those around you that you love. And you've got habits and addictions and behaviors that constantly wound yourself or wound the people you love. And then you say, I'll never do that again. But then you go back to it and you find yourself wounding yourself again and again. And you almost ask yourself, how long will I cut myself? We'll talk about literal cutting in just a second because that's a thing. Uh, people do that but this is more of a spiritual thing uh, being talked about here. And I wanna show you some of the cutting that was happening to the Philistines. And we see these in some of the verses that we just read. Um, the first one, uh, you know, how long, how long until your family is wiped out? See, that's something that here in our text that um, God raises here, how long will your family be wiped out? That's what it said in verse three. Remember the fathers that would not look back to save their children because they were already in such despair. They'd be running and saying, sorry, Junior, even though you're two years old, I'm gonna leave you there because I don't have the strength anymore to carry you and save you. And what I've found about those that are in sin and those that are walking contrary to the Lord, especially the unsaved, if you're an atheist or an agnostic and you wonder why do I keep you know, hurting myself and my family, man, you gotta get out of the Philistine category and come into the, the saved God's chosen people category. We'll get to that in a second. But you know, this idea of, you know, when we sin, did you know that when we sin, we're not just cutting ourselves, we're cutting the people we love the most. It's amazing how many times we see family members who, um, you know, are hurt by, uh, you know, a father's sins or a mother's sins or how much, you know, even a kid that sins, how it hurts their family and their parents and their brothers and sisters. And it just wounds people, you know? Um, we've got a long list in the Bible. Just think about Zedekiah. Remember Zedekiah? We read about him in Jeremiah earlier where he said, I'm gonna, you know, rebel against the Lord and I'm gonna do my own thing. And the Lord said, you're gonna in be in trouble and your family's gonna be in trouble. And the Lord lovingly warned, you know, Zedekiah the king, but what happened to him? Well, if you recall, the story is horrific. Finally, you know, Babylon takes over Jerusalem. Zedekiah grabs his, his sons and his family and he sneaks out a secret passageway out of Jerusalem and runs. He runs toward the Mediterranean Sea. But the Babylonians say, hey, where's the king? And they, they said, we think he ran off toward the Mediterranean Sea. So they took off and in like 10 seconds, they caught up to Zedekiah and his sons and his people. And they put him in chains and they dragged Zedekiah all the way to Babylon where they took and brought him before Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar, 
sat Zedekiah down, brought all of his sons and, and had them line up in front of him. And then they brutally slaughtered his sons right in front of Zedekiah's face. And the last thing that Zedekiah saw with his eyes was his sons being killed. And then they poked out Zedekiah's eyes. And this is a king that saw the most horrific thing a person could see because he was hard-hearted and said, I will not follow the true and living God. I'm gonna do it my way and I'm gonna rebel. Um, Zedekiah was given ample warning. Think of Achan in the book of Joshua. Remember Achan stole you know, the, of the accursed thing as they took over Jericho. He took the Babylonian garments and a wedge of silver and gold and kind of took it and hid it under his tent. And, and he did the very thing that God told them not to do. Um, and he thought he pulled it off, but if you remember the story there in the book of Judges, Joshua calls out Achan because the Lord identified to Joshua, it's Achan. And they took Achan and they took his wife and his whole family and children and his house and killed them and burned their whole possession with fire. Achan's sin wiped out his whole family. Um, there's a biblical theme. How long will we go against God and allow our own lives to mess up our own children's lives. Um, I marvel that parents somehow think divorce is a real answer. And they think that, oh, the kids will bounce back. You know, it's, a, it's a, you know we just can't, we're, we're irre irreconcilable differences, you know. Um, we, have, we have problems in marriage. Well, join the crowd. Marriage is trouble. It's hard, it's difficult. But a lot of people, they somehow think their kids are gonna be okay and, and, or they don't even think about their kids. I've noticed that too. But it's oftentimes the kids that are the greatest, um, you know, victim in divorce. And, um, and I've seen where in counseling and some of the work that we have and people lacking trust in their own spouse or people struggling with just fear and trust issues and all that comes from dad who bailed on them when they were three years old. Or, um, or mom who uh, ran out on dad and was partying down at the bar and, and, and and we think our kids are gonna do okay with that. You know, it's, it's amazing, you know, what we allow into our homes and we think it's all okay. Uh, but our kids are the ones who are getting the bad end of the deal and suffering and going through difficult times. Um, you know, we let movies and junk and magazines and pornography and all kinds of horrible stuff into our lives and we think somehow that's not gonna affect our children. How long will you cut yourselves? You know, that's what the Lord is saying here to these guys. You know, um, you gotta break this stuff off and, and, and alcohol and drugs. And we could just go on about, you know, this thing that we do and we don't think how it's gonna hurt our family or destroy our family. This is what the Philistines were warned of. How long until your family will be, you know, wiped out? Um, number two that we see on here, until how long until your own body is destroyed? We, uh, we see that in verse five, baldness has come upon, you know, and that's what we we're talking about that. How long will you cut yourself? Um, did you know that your body is a temple to the Holy Ghost? The Bible says that. What? Paul says what? Don't you know that your body is a temple to the Holy Ghost? He's shocked that they didn't know that. Isn't it interesting that the enemies of God and the um, throughout the history, um, it's always the evil pagan people um, that we're doing things like destroying the body or cutting the body. Um, as it turns out, we've got more and more young people cutting themselves, literally. Psychologists tell us that there's a sense of depression 
anxiety, but also self-hatred that tends to be uh, linked to this idea of cutting yourself. And we see young people cutting themselves to bleed. And, and um, here's what psychologists actually say that's so scary about cutting is they don't know how to answer this because as they found out scientifically, when a person cuts themselves, as much as it hurts while they're doing it, this is where it gets really scary, is it makes you feel really quite a bit better after you've done, done cutting yourself. Psychology doesn't know what to do with that. Uh, they cut themselves and they really do feel better about themselves afterward. Um, and they walk away going, ah, I feel good now. After they've cut themselves, what's going on there? Well, here's what psychology has also revealed, that it makes them feel better about themselves for a very short time. Then they go further down into depression deeper than before. And it's a vicious cycle and it's a vicious spiral to even suicide. Um, that, that cutting yourself is sort of a precursor to suicide and uh, self-mutilation, self-harm. You know, you see these trends in, in tattoo artists, you know, splitting their tongues and cutting their ears and, you know, just, you know, destroying the body in some ways. Um, and, um, and that's what pagan cultures did. They said, we're going to, we're going to destroy our body. And, uh, and, and even interesting, and, and I'm not arguing against cremation. Uh, if you had, you know, um, you know, Aunt Matilda cremated, God bless you. Uh, that's okay. Well, what about the resurrection of the body? I hear Christians protest and say, you know, uh, well, God can put that back together just as much as a decayed body in the, in the tomb. So that's not something to worry about. But it is interesting. I put this not in a do or don't or good or bad or evil, but it is interesting. It was always God's people that buried the body and uh, didn't burn the body. It was pagan cultures that they would put it up, you know, and put it on a raft like in the movies and put the king on there and light it on fire and they'd send it off and there he'd burn. Um, that was usually the pagan cultures that did that. It was the godly people that they'd gather their bones and they'd put them in a, in a place uh, to be gathered to their people. And it, it was something that was, the, bo the body was to be honored in a certain way. So there's an interesting thing in the Bible about self-mutilation. Do you remember there in 1 Kings chapter 18 um, where Elijah and the prophets of Baal did the Super Bowl of prophets? There were the prophets of Baal and there was Elijah. You know, hundreds of these prophets had been prophesying with Ahab and Jezebel and doing all this evil stuff for the pagan god Baal. And if you remember that Super Bowl challenge uh, of prophets there in 1 Kings 18, do you remember what the prophets of Baal did when it was their turn? Their turn, they said, oh, Baal, send fire from heaven to this altar. And when nothing happened, they shrieked and you know, yelled and screamed and said, oh, Baal, they freaked out. And, and nothing happened, crickets, man. While this happened, this is where it gets funny. Elijah's sitting over, leaning up against the rock, watching these guys, and he says, uh, guys, where's, where's your God, Baal? Is he on vacation? Is he in the restroom facility? Like, he seriously said that. Um, uh, you have to look in the Hebrew to get that. You won't find that in the King Jimmy, but it's there in the Hebrew text. Um, and, and he says, where's your God? And they, and they looked at Elijah and they said, oh, you're making fun of us. So what did they do? They got out a bunch of sharp rocks and started gashing themselves and blood was spurting out of their arms. Did you know that some of the Muslims do this? I love, um, you know, how Elijah won that battle, by the way, before I tell you about the Muslims. Um, you know, the Baal prophets never got fire to come down. They had blood spurting and shrieking and screaming all day long to no avail. And then Elijah 
um, the prophet just says, okay, put an altar here, pour water on it, dig ditches, water flowing, ditches, you know. And then Elijah gives like a little 10 second prayer. Lord, would you light the fire, please? Ooh, no shrieking, no cutting, no demolishing, no self-mutilation, not trying to appease the gods. Elijah just asked the Lord simply and the Lord answered. I love that. That's, that's the God we serve. But Baal, by the way, he had to be gushed and blooded and all that. That's what the Muslims do. The Shiite, particularly Muslim, um, has a festival called Ashura. Um, Google it if you want to. If you Google Ashura and then ch check out the images, um, you'll see just all kinds of blood. It's horrible. And it's not just blood of men. It's blood of children and babies. They literally do these festivals where men will march down the street with swords and they'll slice their heads and blood will spurt out of head wounds. They'll whip themselves with flagellums and like, like kind of like Jesus whips. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, so that blood spurts out of their backs. They all wear white robes so that the blood really pops on film. And so people can see how bloodied they, they made themselves. And it's this horrific thing that they believe somehow, you know, it, um, it's linked to the prophet Muhammad and someone who deserves some vengeance and all this stuff, but it's a whole nother story. But I'm so glad we serve a God that is not telling us to cut ourselves or beat ourselves or, uh, you know, use a whip on ourselves. Um, no, that's not, that's not what we do. Um, we'll talk more about the whipping in a second, but until their own bodies are destroyed, some people just continue to mutilate themselves, even if it's not physically, spiritually. You know, we do sinful things that we know harm us and hurt us. And here we have a loving God that's saying, no, I want you to be safe. I want you to be healthy. And I don't want you, I'm not listening to you based on your shrieking and bloodletting. I'm gonna hear you based on just my mercy and my goodness. And if you call out to me, I'll hear, hear you and I'll, I'll be merciful to you. Um, I'm so thankful. Well, the Philistines, how long are you gonna cut yourselves? How long until you destroy your families? How long until you destroy your own body? But there's a third and final one. How long until your nation um, is demolished? How long till your nation is destroyed, um, gone forever? And like I said before, the Philistines, they're extinct today. Never to be heard of again. What a sad, sad thing that is. But, um, you know, Israel uh, and, and the Palestinians, you know, that's something I hope you can be champions of because they're extinct, just like Jeremiah 47. The Bible's always right. And if people try to rewrite history on that one, don't listen to it. Um, by the way, how many times is Jerusalem mentioned in the Quran? Anybody? Anybody? Zero. How many times is Jerusalem mentioned in the Hebrew Bible? 800 times. Uh, that's an amazing thing. Uh, when did Jerusalem become the third most holy site in all of Is uh, Islam? Uh, when Yasser Arafat's great uncle, the Grand Mufti, declared it to be so. That was like back in the 1940s, I believe, is when Islam, that's like recent history. Uh, and Muhammad was only there maybe even once, maybe not even that, but there's a question even about that. But the point is, you know, the Philistines are gone and it's Israeli territory and uh, that's the end of that. So, so what's so sad is they ended up out of there and, and um, the Philistines just kept rebelling to their own demise and that's what sin does. So you might say, Brett, this is a depressing story on a chilly, icy weekend. Um, couldn't you have done something warm and cozy? Well, this is where the story does turn warm and cozy, if you ask me. 
what do we do? What should we do as sinners who know that we're in trouble and um, we need help? Uh, are we like the Philistines where we rebel against the true and living God who loves you so much that he wants to save you from your sinful direction? The spiral like these Philistines, the Lord, I believe, had these Philistines ever repented and followed the true and living God, um, the Lord would have saved them. They had their opportunities. Do you remember when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant from the Jews and brought it into their temple of Dagon? I told you that the Philistines were Phoenicians that came from the Aegean Sea. Um, that explains Dagon. That's where they got this God Dagon, this half, half man, half fish. And they, they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon next to the statue of Dagon. And do you remember what happened? They put the Ark in, Dagon fell down before the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines came on in and said, Daggone it. And they, you know, tipped the, the fish man back up. And uh, the next day they came in and he'd fallen down again. And, um, and this time his head and his hands were falling off too. So they said, man, we got to get this Jewish God, the Ark of the Covenant. And that wasn't a God. It was a representation of God's power, but it wasn't God. They thought that. So they said, we got to get this God out of here. It's more powerful than our God. We reject this God, the powerful one. And we like our fish God, even though we have to glue him back together with Elmer's glue and prop him back up from time to time. That's okay. We like a God that we can control. Do you understand that the people that reject the true and living God, it's often because <clears throat> they don't like the idea of being at the mercy of another God, a God that's real, a God that's powerful. The Philistines were not willing to follow the true and living God. So they, in their rebellion, uh, and to their total destruction and demise followed their own pagan deities. So what should we do? Well, we repent. We don't beat ourselves up and keep cutting ourselves and keep spiraling. By the way, did you know that Martin Luther um, used to do this thing where he'd whip himself? Um, when he was in his cell, which they called that, that's where the monks would stay in their little concrete rooms. Very humble. Uh, they weren't imprisoned there, but <clears throat> they, they wanted to keep themselves humble. But whenever Martin Luther slept in too much or felt like he wasn't thinking pure thoughts, he would get out a whip. In fact, there's drawings of the whips that Martin Luther used to use. And they were not that unlike um, the ones that were used on Christ, the flagellum, as we call it, um, that they used to tear the back of Jesus and bruise and beat and whip. That's the kind of whip Martin Luther used on himself. And he, he's, you know, written up as bloodying his back, trying to uh, beat himself up until Martin Luther uh, read the book of Romans. And when he read the book of Romans, he realized that it's by grace you're saved and it's God's mercy and you're justified by faith. Um, through gr God's grace, through faith. And, and uh, Martin Luther stopped doing self-injury and, and uh, all that to say, you know, um, what, what do we do? The answer is to stop cutting yourself, stop hurting yourself. Um, whether it's literally, of course, or even figuratively, beating yourself up with drugs and alcohol, thinking that somehow you're drowning your sorrows, um, leaving your family behind, and you're just now maybe realizing that you're gonna destroy your family if you don't change your course. Well, um, all that to say, the, what's the deal with Christianity? It's a big difference. I don't know how much time we got here. Has it, does anybody have the time? <laughs> I've lost track of time. Um, um, where even when we started. So this might be a long, um, okay, all right. 
Um, let me, let me, cause I wasn't sure how long to go, but let me finish with this. Um, because you know, the question here, how long will you cut yourselves? They said to the Philistines, guess what? The Philistines deserve to be cut with the sword and they ended up being wiped out. And the bad news is you and I deserve to be cut and beaten and bruised just like the Philistines. But Jesus came with that purpose to solve that problem. He came and he was wounded for our transgressions. He was nailed by uh, nails through the wrist and feet onto the cross. Jesus is the one who was beaten with that flagellum. Martin Luther didn't have to whip himself with that flagellum because Jesus was whipped with the flagellum. Um, people miss the whole point. Uh, the whole world is headed the way of the Philistines. How long the Lord would say to the Philistines, but also to you and me, will you cut yourselves? I was cut and bled for you. I took your penalty and your sin. I took your wounds. There's an old story, like a parable that was written that is one of my favorites. I'd like to read it to you. It's called Ragman by Walter Wengren Jr. Um, it's a, it's a parable, uh, and let's uh, if you can kind of stick with me, it goes like this. I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story, most strange, like nothing in my life. My street sense, my sly tongue had never, ever prepared me for. So hush now and listen, and I will tell you the story. Even before the dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking in the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes and um, both bright and rags that were bright and new, cloths that were nice. He was calling in a clear tenor voice, rags. Oh, the air was foul. The first light was just barely starting to show. Rags, rags, new rags for old. I'll take your tired old rags. Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four. His arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular. His eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, to be a ragman in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing, uh, you know, crying, sh shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook as she was crying. Her heart was breaking. The radman stopped his cart. Quietly he walked to the woman, stepping round tin cans and dead toys and old pampers. Give me a rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. Took. She looked up and laid... Uh, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief in his own face. And then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking. Yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who couldn't turn away from a mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky sh uh, showed gray behind the rooftops, I could see the shredded curtains hanging out of black windows. 
The ragman came upon a little girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty and blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me a rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek and giving her the bonnet. He says, I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet sat on hers, and I gasped at what I saw. For with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow ran the darker, more substantial blood. It was his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and both my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to be in a hurry. Are you going to work? He asked a man who leaned against the telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him, do you have a job? Are you crazy? Sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat, the cuff stuffed into a pocket. He had no arm. So, said the ragman, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. So much quiet authority in his voice. The one man armed took off his jacket. So did the ragman. And I trembled at what I saw for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve. And when the other put it on, he had two good arms thick as tree limbs, but the ragman only had one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious between the wall and an army blanket. An old man, hunched, sick, wheezing. He took that blanket, wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, drunk man, he left brand new clothing. Now I'd run to keep up with the ragman. He, he was in a hurry more than ever, though he'd weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely from the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old and sick. Yet he went on with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city this mile and the next until he came to his limits and then he rushed beyond the city limits. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow and yet I need to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman then he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits and I waited to help him. And what I, but what I did is I just hung back, hiding. He climbed the hill and with tormented labor, cleared a little space on the garbage hill. And then he sighed and he laid down uh, his head on the handkerchief and on the jacket. And he covered his bones with an army blanket. And then he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and waited and mourned as one who had no hope because I had come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in wonder of this man and I cherished him, but he died. And I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know, how could I know, that I slept through Friday night, Saturday, and it's night too. But then... On Sunday morning, I was awakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face and I blinked and I looked and saw the first wonder of all. There was the ragman 
folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And beside that, healthy. And there was no sign of sorrow or age. All the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head and trembling for all that I had seen, I myself walked up to the ragman and I told him my name with shame for I was a sorry figure next to him. Then I took off all my clothes in that place and said to him with dear yearning in my voice, please dress me. He dressed me, my Lord. He put new rags on me and I am a wonder beside him. The ragman, the ragman, the Christ. <laughs> I like that one because it's this sort of allegory, this little parable that helps us realize that Jesus did exactly that. It reminds me of Isaiah 53, five, and I'll put it up here just because it's such a great verse where it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and his, by his stripes or with his stripes, we are healed. Man, I love that. Um, you know, we know that Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin, literally dying on the cross for our sins. All that to say, what does this mean? You can either live your life like a Philistine and keep spiraling and hurting yourself and torturing yourself and thinking that you're gonna get somewhere with that, but you're ultimately gonna hurt people around you and you're gonna end up in total annihilation or you can say, you know what? I am a wretched, miserable sinner and I do deserve death, but man, why? How long will you cut yourselves? How long will you live with your sin when you can go to Jesus, the ragman, if you would, who says, I'll take your iniquity upon myself and I will take your wounds that you deserve and I will bear them for you. This question that was asked to the Philistines is one that we need to ask ourselves. How long will you cut yourselves? Go to Christ, be saved, be transformed, be changed. Millions of people have done it. And you won't know how wonderful it is until you actually repent of your sins. It doesn't mean your life will be wonderful for that day forward. It doesn't mean everything's gonna be rosy. But here's what it does mean. He takes your old sinfulness and he wipes it away. He remembers your sins no more and he washes you. And spiritually you are clean. Jesus said, now you are clean by the word that I have spoken unto you be cleaned, be, be saved. Hey, if you're not a Christian, today's a great day on a chilly weekend. You'll never forget Snowmageddon 2021 is the day that you said, I'm gonna accept Christ and become a believer. Um, if you're already a Christian, would you just rejoice that Jesus took our wounds? We don't need to cut ourselves, beat ourselves up, feel guilty or condemned because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But if you're still in your sins and you're still not saved, repent. Bible says, repent of your sins. That means to acknowledge your sin before God. Kind of like that guy in the ragman story that came up and said, change me. That's acknowledging that I need to be changed. That's what you need to do is acknowledge before God, Lord, change me. And then say, Lord, forgive me. And I believe you have to confess this with your mouth. Romans 10, verse nine and 10. And believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose up from the grave, just, just like the Bible says he would. And when he rose from the grave, it stuck. The, the salvation for humanity. Anybody who wants it, it's there for the taking. So if that's you and you wanna be saved, man, just confess, say, Lord, I believe in you. I accept you as my savior. Forgive me for my sins and the Lord will save you. You're a Christian, you're saved. You no longer have to beat yourself up or feel condemned and let the Lord help you. In time, he's gonna start cleaning you up and changing you and transforming you into the person he wants you to be.
Sad to say, the Philistines never got that memo. They just kept doing their thing and went to oblivion and total annihilation. God forbid. Well, Lord, I pray, Lord, in this weekend that you just bless the folks as we've looked at chapter 47 of this book, Lord of Jeremiah. I pray that, that you just, first of all, for the believers out there, Lord, I pray that we'd be rejoicing that you were wounded for our transgressions. You were despised, you were rejected, but Lord, you, you saved us from our sins. And so, Lord, I pray you'd bless your church today, this weekend. Lord, I pray that you would just be honored and glorified in all things we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.